thankful. I am thankful to be here tonight. Uh, I'm thankful that the Lord has allowed me to be here tonight. Um, but I'm also overwhelmed at the number of friends and loved ones that are here tonight with me as well. It's thank you. Thank you all from the bottom of my heart. Each one of you have a special place in my heart. Um, some of you I worked with. Some of you I've gone to church with. Uh, you know, just friends. Um, I'm thankful for you, each one of you, and I'm thankful that you're here tonight. And um, Dana asked me tonight if I would open our time tonight in Bible study. So I'm going to do as she has instructed and start with the Bible study. Um, For time's sake tonight, we're not going to have time for our question and answer table discussion, but we'll try to get back to that next month. For those who are joining us tonight, our women's ministry meets on the second Tuesday night of each month, September through May. And as Dana said, we're studying through Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, which is better known as the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we meet, uh, usually we have a time of fellowship, and we, of course, we always eat. Uh, We couldn't meet without having food, and then we have our Bible study. So thank you for joining us tonight. If you would like, as Dana said, to participate in the Bible study, you can download the study guide off of the website by going to Kelty's.org and Women's Ministry Bible Study, and then you can print that off. So tonight, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. And this portion of the Sermon on the Mount is referred to as the Beatitudes. In fact, your Bible may say at the top, the Beatitudes. The word Beatitude comes from the Latin word betus, which literally can be translated as happy. So if you have your study guide and... um, Last week we didn't get that far, but if you go to page 3 in your study guide, this will be the last fill-in-the-blank on, on page 3, is uh, the Latin word betus, which means to be happy. But before we read our text tonight, I want us to understand what the disciples were thinking on the day that they sat at Jesus' feet and he began to teach. Up until this point... Now, remember, a crowd has begun to follow Jesus. They were intrigued by him. They were intrigued by the miracles that he had performed and um, the signs and wonders that they saw. And so they began to follow him. In chapter 4, Jesus has chosen his 12 disciples. So in this crowd were Jewish people and the 12 disciples. The scripture says that they go up into the mountain, they sit down, and Jesus begins to teach them. But as I said, up until this point, what did the disciples know about the Messiah? Well, the reality is that the disciples, like all the other Jewish people, believed that Jesus had come to free them from Roman oppression. They believed that the Messiah would overthrow the Roman rulers and restore Israel back to its former greatness. The Jewish people believed that the Messiah would be a literal king over the nation of Israel again. 
So as the disciples were sitting there at the feet of Jesus, they're thinking, finally, finally, things are going to get set in order. Jesus is going to be a powerful ruler, a powerful king over Israel. But what part do we play in all this? You know, Jesus has chosen us. What's a, what is our part going to be in this? Well, you know, most likely they thought that they were going to have some power and authority in the new kingdom that the Messiah was going to establish. They were going to be, play a part in crushing and, and, and overthrowing the Roman rulers. And as a result, they would be crowned with wealth and renown. So it's with these expectations that Jesus opens his mouth and utters eight simple statements. So keep this in mind. Keep in mind what they're thinking. So let's begin reading in Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. And he, Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are, the, are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When what Jesus has just said goes way beyond, way beyond what any of the disciples would have ever expected. Rather than telling them that they were going to have power and they were going to have authority and rule over a kingdom, what does he say? Jesus describes to them what a follower of Christ looks like. Jesus describes what it means to be a citizen of heaven. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now the word that stands out most there is poor. Every one of us in this room has a baseline understanding of what it means to be poor. Every one of us in this room has an understanding of what it means to be wealthy. But Jesus is talking about something completely different. He's not talking about the condition of their wealth. He's talking about the condition of their spirit. The condition of their spirit goes hand in hand with what we talked about last time when we met, those two gospel words that we find in Matthew chapter 4, in verses 17 and 19, where Jesus says, repent and follow me. You see, before a person can repent, or before a person repents of their sin, most often they see themselves as being pretty good. Self-sufficient, enough 
within themselves. They may think that they've done enough good things that they can fulfill their spiritual obligation. They're charitable, a good husband, good wife. They're honest, morally good, a good parent. You see, this kind of person thinks of themselves as being spiritually wealthy. The way of Jesus tells us that there is a blessing, that there's happiness when we accurately see ourselves. We accurately see our spiritual poverty and agree that we have nothing, absolutely nothing, to offer to God. It's realizing that when we hold our hands up to God, that we are in total depravity. There is nothing that we could offer God in exchange for our salvation. There is nothing that would merit God's gift of salvation to us. It is a gift that God gives to us that we don't deserve, nor can we earn. When we come to God empty-handed with nothing, it's then, Scripture says, that Jesus approves our heart attitude and he gives us the kingdom of heaven. You see, being poor in spirit indicates true repentance. True repentance. It reminds me of the hymn, Rock of Ages. The third verse of that song goes like this. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. To thy fountain, Lord, I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So who enters into the kingdom of God? Only those who are poor in spirit. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, is about being the person God intends us to be. Jen Wilkins says that the Beatitudes are not a list of doing, but they're a list of being. Two things that Jesus shows us in the Beatitudes in these first 16 verses. The first four Beatitudes have to do with our vertical relationship with the Father. The second four Beatitudes have to do with our horizontal relationships with others and bearing fruit, which is the evidence of our salvation. The Beatitudes are areas of of sanctification where the Lord works in us to grow us and to change us into his likeness. So in order, this is important, in order to have a relationship with God the Father, we must first see our spiritual poverty. Realize that we are nothing aside from God. 
Then Jesus moves to verse 4. He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I know you've probably heard this verse many times taken out of context throughout your life at funerals. This verse is not talking about grieving over the loss of someone or something. Here Jesus is talking about an entirely different kind of mourning. Mourning over our sin. What is sin? Sin is anything that we think, that we say, that we do, that we don't do, that displeases God. Anything that displeases God is a sin. Arthur Pink says, thousands admit that they are sinners, but never mourn the fact that it is true. You see, our hearts should break when we realize how our sinful thoughts and our sinful actions have broken God's heart. Do we realize that in our life? Do I realize that? How my sin grieves a holy and a righteous God. Churches are full of people who readily admit that they are sinners but absolutely have no grief, no remorse, or sorrow over their sin. Ladies, without grief, without sorrow, without remorse of our sin, there's no comfort. There's no comfort. People search all of their lives for comfort and for peace, but comfort doesn't come until we understand how our sin has grieved God. We must see our sin the way God sees our sin. And when we do, the scripture says that we will be comforted. You know, the word comfort there is also the same word that is used to describe the Holy Spirit. So, when we mourn our sin... When we see our sin the way God sees our sin, it says that is when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells our body and comforts us and gives us peace and gives us joy that we so long for. Remember, we're talking about that vertical relationship with God. Then he moves to verse 5. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does it mean to be meek? You know, some people think that to be meek is to be weak. But that's not, that's not at all what it means. To be meek is powerful. It's to have power. You know, it, it takes a lot of strength and power not to retaliate or react against another person that's hurt you. It takes a lot of strength and power to not react against our circumstances in life. Meekness is to trust God. It's to trust God no matter what the circumstances. 
Meekness is to rest in the Lord and his control over every situation in your life. Meekness is an attitude of our heart. Meekness is to submit to the will of God and not, re- not resist or fight against our circumstances. As a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, meekness is to humbly submit to the will of God in our life. It's not my will, not my will, but thine be done. Our will causes nothing but heartache and stress and sorrow. But when we submit to the will of God, he brings joy into our life. He frees us to live our life in a way that he intends for us to live in humble obedience to him in spite of our circumstances. Most of you are here tonight because you are aware of my circumstances. You are aware that I was given a diagnosis that most likely I would only live another three months. I don't know. God's in control of that. The doctor said three months, but you know, I, I'm going to go with I'm going to go with what God says. And so it may be sooner, it may be later. But you know, I, even though I have this diagnosis, I still have peace, and I still have joy in spite of my circumstances. My circumstances doesn't control my joy. My source of hope, my source of joy and peace and comfort comes from the Lord. And ladies, that's what God wants for you. He wants you to have that same peace and joy in your life in spite of your circumstances. We all have circumstances. We all have situations in our life. And we can have joy and peace in spite of that. And then in verse 6, Jesus continues on. Remember, we're talking about that vertical relationship that we have with our Father. Jesus continues and says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You know, when we initially come to Christ, when we are initially are saved, we receive the righteousness of Christ. When God looks at us, I'm still a sinner. But when God looks at us, he sees Christ. Christ has covered over my sinfulness. This is not really what Jesus is talking about here, though. What he's talking about is a daily hungering and a daily thirsting to learn more about Jesus. When we truly follow the way of Jesus, he gives us a new appetite. You know, when a person is really, really hungry or thirsty, I mean, they can just scarf it down. I think about when I was in the hospital, I I went over, it was over 48 hours that I didn't have anything to eat or drink. This was just a few weeks ago. 
And I, I came back from surgery, and, and those of you who have been, you know, had surgery and experienced this, you know when you come back, your mouth is so dry, it just feels like it's just a big wad of cotton in there. And uh, so I, w- I was back into my room, and I asked the nurse, I said, uh, could I have some ice chips or something? You know, my mouth is so dry. And she said, uh, well, I can, get, I can bring you a popsicle. And uh, I said, well, would you want a popsicle? I said, sure. And so she brought me a popsicle. And I, and I, kid, I kid you not, I, I scarfed that popsicle down. I didn't even lick it. I just <laughs> chomped that popsicle down. I was so, you know, so thirsty. And she said, well, do you want another one? And I said, sure. And so she went and got me another popsicle. You know, you see, I was thirsty. I was hungry. And, you know, I, I, I just devoured those two popsicles. Well, as followers of Christ, we should be diligently searching and seeking and hungering after the righteousness of God. In other words, we should have a burning desire within us to know more about Jesus and to know more about his character and how he wants us to live. How do we search for righteousness? Through God's Word, being in God's Word, spending time in Scripture. How much time do we spend seeking after righteousness? That's important. Blessed are those who seek after the knowledge of God and and who seek after the character of Christ, for they will be satisfied. He will give us that knowledge. He'll give us that understanding if we seek after it. He will make us and he'll transform our lives so that we are more like him. Do we hunger and thirst after righteousness? Or are we more satisfied with the things of the world than we are? Christ. Remember, the first four Beatitudes have to do with our vertical relationship with the Lord. Notice the logical progression. We're poor in spirit. We are totally dependent on God, His grace and His mercy for our salvation We agree with God as it relates to our sin. We mourn over our sin. We humble ourselves to the will of God. And we hunger after the things that point us to Jesus. Do you see what's going on here? You see, this is a picture of our salvation. It's a picture of what it means to be a Christian. To be a follower of Christ. Now do you see how confusing this probably was to the disciples and the crowd that Jesus was speaking to that day? Now we're going to move on to the next four Beatitudes. And they talk about that, those horizontal relationships. Once the Lord begins to work in our heart. He enables us to produce evidence 
or bear fruit of our salvation so that we interact differently with those around us. There's evidence in our life of growth in our spiritual in our righteousness. In verse 7, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, I'm not talking about like the gift of mercy, like being a caregiver or, you know, taking food to somebody or, you know, that's not what I'm talking about. And that's what, biblically speaking, mercy means that we don't get what we deserve. God didn't give us. He doesn't give us what we deserve. God has provided a way of escape. You see, because of our sin, we deserve to perish. But God sent his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Scripture says, all we like sheep have gone astray, each turned to his own way. In other words, we're sinful people. We want what we want. But on him... On Jesus was laid the iniquity of us all. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin so that we could be reconciled to God and we could have a relationship with him. Titus 3 verse 5 says, Christ saved us not because of the righteous things that we have done, but according to his own mercy. God is merciful to us. You know, I think mercy and forgiveness go hand in hand. We demonstrate compassion and forgiveness. We should demonstrate mercy and compassion to others regardless of their worthiness or regardless of whether they deserve it. Because that what was what Christ gave to us. He demonstrated he mercy. He gave, was merciful to us. Not because we were worth it. Not because we deserved it. But because he loved us. What makes us merciful to others? What gives us that ability to be merciful to others? Is God's grace. If I'm not merciful to others... There's only one explanation. I've never understood the grace and the mercy that God has bestowed on me. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, If I am without mercy, I am outside of Christ, and yet in sin, I am unforgiven. God was merciful to us as sinners. He demonstrated his mercy towards us. And we, in turn, should also be merciful to others. And this is evidence and fruit of our salvation. It's evident when we demonstrate mercy to others. It's evidence of our vertical relationship with God the Father. Then in verse 8, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure, pure in heart. For they shall see God. To be pure in heart does not mean that we are sinless. 
or that we are perfect. It's not what the scripture implies there. You know, I have a Keurig coffee pot, and ever so often a light comes on and tells me that I need to change the filter. The filter is important in the coffee pot because it purifies the water of contaminants and minerals and elements that make the, the coffee taste bad. So over time, the filter gets clogged with sediments and things, and, then, and I need to put in a new filter. When we are born again, when we receive Christ as our Savior, Scripture says that he washes us and he cleanses us of our sin. But as we walk through life, we pick up contaminants. We pick up sinful habits in our life that are things that are not good for us in our life. And this sin breaks our fellowship with the Father. Now, we don't lose our salvation, but it does affect our relationship with God. But the scripture says, if we confess our sin, God is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When we draw near to God... When we seek his forgiveness, he cleanses us and purifies our hearts. We don't change ourselves. God changes us. But in order to have a pure heart, we have to align our thinking and our desires with God's desires and seek forgiveness from our sins. Do you realize that There is coming a day when each one of us will stand face to face with God. Each one of us. Are you preparing for that day? Are you preparing for the day that you will enter into the presence of the Lord? That's a momentous occasion in your life? Or are we wasting time on things that have absolutely no eternal value? Oftentimes, I think we're wasting our time on things that have no value rather than preparing ourselves to stand before God, preparing ourselves for eternity. This is the blessing that we shall see God. Evident, those who are children of God will see God. You know, those who are pure in heart, as I said before, are not sinless. But our desires have been purified as by trials. You know, God uses the trials. He uses the circumstances. He uses all of the situations in our lives to reshape us and to mold us so that we have a greater longing and a greater desire for the things of God rather than for our own desires and the things of the world. And then in verse 9, 
He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those that help others make peace. Make peace with others and also make peace with God. Those are the ones who will be called sons of God. Remember that the Jewish people had the idea that the kingdom, that the Messiah was going to set up, was going to be a military kingdom. They were entirely wrong. But here the Lord is saying, you don't understand. My kingdom is not a kingdom of this world. Why are there so, is there so much unhappiness and turmoil and discord and wars going on in our, in our world? Why, why is it such enough people? Well, our heart is all right here. Scripture says that out of the heart comes evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, jealousy, envy, malice, all of these things come from what's in our heart. And because of these, those things, there is no peace. You see, a peacemaker is one his, whose main concern is to glorify God. So what does a peacemaker look like? Well, a peacemaker thinks. They, they think matters through before they speak. They know when to talk and when not to. You know, a peacemaker is swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. God himself is a God of peace. That he sent his son to provide a way of salvation so that we could be at peace with God. To be a peacemaker is to reflect the image of God and his son in our lives and help others to make peace with others and to make peace between themselves and God. We're called to make peace and to make peace with God. This is evident of our Christianity is evidence of our vertical relationship with the Father. Are we peacemakers? Or do we like to stir things up and have drama? Sometimes I think we like to stir things up rather than being peacemakers. Then it takes a turn in verse 12, in verse 10 through 12. In verse 10, it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What Jesus is saying in this passage is that the more we reflect the image of Christ the more of a target that we will become for persecution. Jesus is telling us, though, our reward will be great in heaven, and no one can take that away from us. Persecution is the fruit, is the evidence of our identification as Christians. I hope you will meditate this week on what it means to be 
a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Remember, it's not about doing. It's about being. Here in this passage, Jesus has set the expectation of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And he completely obliterates any expectation that the disciples and the followers in that crowd would have had. The perk for being a Christian is that we have a relationship with the greatest peacemaker of all, and that is Jesus Christ. I'm going to quickly conclude tonight uh, with this last verses, 13 through 16. In this passage, Jesus moves from what it looks like to be a Christian to the to what it means to influence others in our world. Jesus uses two simple illustrations, salt and light. In verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus says that we are to be the salt of the earth. And salt has some very important properties. Salt has flavor. I love salt, especially on popcorn and, you know, French fries. I even love salt on watermelon. When I have watermelon, I've got to have salt. Salt has flavor. Salt preserves things. You know, back in the day, before they had refrigeration, people would pack their meat in salt to keep it from decaying. Salt has healing properties. It's used to prevent infection and wounds. Our bodies need salt. We have salt in our blood. We have salt in our tears and in our sweat. Scripture says, though, if the salt has been tainted or contaminated, it's no longer useful. How do we lose our saltiness? We lose our saltiness when our lives become contaminated with sin. When, when others, unbelievers, can look at our lives and they see nothing different in our lives than they see in theirs. We're no longer useful. The salt in Jesus' time was very valuable. But it wasn't pure like the salt that we have today. Most likely they collected it from the Dead Sea. And it had bits of grit and grime in it. They had to be careful where they kept their salt. They had to keep it in a container um, and keep it from getting wet because if the salt got wet, what would happen to it? It would just dissolve and all would be left was the grit and the grime. Jesus is saying that as Christians, we should be an influence, influence in the sphere that he has placed us in. We need to be salt not the grit and the grime. We need to be salt in the environment that God has placed us in. You can turn on the news any day of the week and you see the decay in the world. You see violence. You see hurting. You see abuse. All sorts of things that are going on into our world. in our world. As Christians, though, our saltiness can slow the rapid decay of this world. You know, when you eat salt, it makes you thirsty. The idea here is that if we live 
in the way of Jesus. Our saltiness should cause others to thirst after a new way of life. A life that's filled with peace and joy and comfort. A life that only can come from a relationship with Christ. Then we move to verse 14. He says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What do others see in us? Do unbelievers see anything different in our life than they see in their own? Is our light concealed? Is it hidden? Can people identify us as Christians? Or are we letting our light shine so that others can see the glory of God? Ladies, we have all been blessed in so many ways. And for us to bless others by being salt and light, that's our calling. That's what God has called us to do. This is how we use our blessing. This is the fruit. This is the evidence of our relationship with God. In Matthew chapter 5, the first 16 verses, this is just the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' opening monologue. So next time when we meet, we'll begin verse 17, and we'll be stepping into the more of the body of the sermon. We'll be talking about the way of the righteous. So I'm just, that's all I have for us tonight, and I hope um, that you have done your, your homework, those of you who uh, are in part of our study. And next week, um, you know, begin your homework for the way of the righteous. And hopefully we'll have some more time for discussion next time as we meet. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I come to you today thanking you for your words. I pray that your words will change our life and grow us in your righteousness. I pray that as Christians that we would desire to be salt and light to those around us, and lead others to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.